Hello there to all my fellow 101 History Podcast listeners. Hard to believe today is the last day of January. 2022 is moving quick, and come tomorrow, we are into the start of February. But I am definitely glad to be back on the air as we are going to be uh, discussing uh, more uh, fascinating information about Adams versus Jefferson, the tumultuous election of 1800 by John Furling. In this uh, segment, we're going to be uh, learning more about Adams and Jefferson's uh, backgrounds from their um, earliest of days um, as young men up until the time they um, go overseas. So, when I mean by going overseas, I'm not talking about studying abroad like you know college students um, get to do, but in this case, going overseas, it could mean that, that uh, both men have uh, missions to serve. And usually when I think of um, those who work in the government who uh, go overseas, it could be for a variety of things, but who knows, maybe both of these men are serving as uh, ambassadors. Don't want to give that away, but it is a, a strong likelihood that um, that these men could be serving as ambassadors at some point in the post-Revolutionary War era. So we've got a lot of ground to cover, uh, but then again, we always seem to have lots of ground to cover in each uh, podcast segment, regardless of the topic. But that's never a bad thing, because if there wasn't a whole lot of ground to cover, then what would be the point in even listening to a, a podcast segment on a um, topic of um, historical significance? So... Let's uh, fasten our seatbelts and get ready to go uh, for another uh, fun, exciting um, segment to Adams versus Jefferson, the tumultuous election of 1800. Our leadoff question will be uh, the following. Come election time in 1800, how old were John Adams and Thomas Jefferson? Does anybody want to take a guess at how old John Adams might have been? I'll give you a number. It's between the age of 60 and 70. The answer is 65. And what age do you all think Thomas Jefferson might have been going into 1800? I'll give you a number. It's between the age of 50 and 60. The answer is 57. So between John Adams's age and Thomas Jefferson's age, you know, Adams being 65, Jefferson 57, there's an eight-year age difference between these men. So many of you all are probably wondering, okay, there's a, we've got an eight-year eight age difference. When exactly uh, were both of these men born uh, year-wise? Well, John Adams was born in 1735. Thomas Jefferson was born in 1743. So John Adams is uh, three years younger than George Washington. He's, he would be two years older than uh, John Hancock, and he would be 13 years older than his cousin Samuel Adams. And once again, who is the oldest of our forefathers? He's almost 30 years old by the time John Adams is born. Benjamin Franklin, who was born in 1706. For Thomas Jefferson, yes, he's born in 1743. But I think it'd be worth pointing out some um, unique uh, differences between these two men based upon the times in which they were born, but their uh, backgrounds, that is, uh, family backgrounds. 
John Adams was the eldest son of a middling farmer. Does anybody know uh, what a middling farmer is? Well, one who is a middling farmer is not super rich, and he's not in, in what we call the poor ranks of society. He's really in between middle ground. So basically, a middling, uh, a middling farmer, his family usually, on average, probably made about 12 pounds a year. And that would have been enough to have bought the family a, um, a musket. The only reason I know that is because I learned that at uh, Yorktown, where they have a uh, farm on display that would have represented the uh, typical uh, middling family's uh, dwellings of the 18th century leading up to the American Revolutionary War. Um, but most middling families made about 12 pounds a year, which uh, would have uh, been able to have afforded them um, necessities that okay, maybe weren't essential for everyday uh, purposes, but if they needed, say, a musket, then they, they could afford something like that because um, anybody who owned a rifle um, obviously was um, in the upper tier status of society. Most uh, families did not own rifles, for example. So, so yes, John Adams' father is a middling farmer. He's not super rich or super poor, but he's in between. He's in, in the uh, core middle ground. Adams hailed from Braintree, Massachusetts, outside of Boston. However, uh, Thomas Jefferson, like John Adams, was also the eldest son in his family. Thomas Jefferson's father became a wealthy planter through marriage. Jefferson's father was Peter Jefferson, whom was a very um, well-to-do surveyor, and as a matter of fact, uh, Mr. Peter Jefferson, along with a fellow named Joshua Fry, were uh, one of the first two men uh, whom worked together in establishing a map of uh, Virginia in the 18th century and where the lines uh, drew, um, you know, state lines between, say, Virginia and North Carolina and uh, Maryland. And yes, it would be easy to think that these are modern-day state lines, but when you look at the Jefferson-Fry map, you are have to be blown away at just how big Virginia was. I mean, we should all know in the 18th century, Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies, that um, that Virginia's boundaries or Virginia's territory goes into West Virginia, Ohio, Indiana, Illinois, Michigan, Wisconsin, uh, even into what we now know as Kentucky and Tennessee. So, you know, Virginia is the granddaddy of all 13 states. So, yes, Thomas Jefferson's father, he became a wealthy planter through marriage. And uh, whom did um, Peter Jefferson marry? I don't expect maybe many of you all to know this, but it is uh, important because he married into a family who was in the um, maybe top um, 1% to 2% of Virginia's society in terms of land ownership and just status overall. He married a woman named Jane Randolph. Anytime you hear the uh, name, uh, last name of Randolph in Virginia, associate it with land and money because the Randolphs owned a lot of land in Virginia. Very uh, powerful, tidewater, aristocratic family. I, whenever I think of Randolphs, I think of uh, Peyton Randolph, who uh, went on to become um, president of the Continental Congress. Um, 
sadly, Mr. Peyton Randolph dies in 1775, which get, opened the doors for uh, Massachusetts um, delegate John Hancock to become the next uh, president of the Continental Congress. So yes, Peter Jefferson marries uh, Jane Randolph, and that marriage um, allowed him to own vast tracts of acreage to serving as a member of Virginia's House of Burgesses. So Thomas Jefferson is born in Albemarle County. Of course, when I think of Albemarle County, that's where Charlottesville is, the University of Virginia. Probably no more than just a little over an hour's drive uh, from where I live. And the University of Virginia is a wonderful university. It's uh, pretty much been my second university all of my life. So whenever I walk the grounds, when I've done that in times past, I always have felt like I've been a student at, uh, at UVA. So Thomas Jefferson is born in Albemarle County, a place called uh, Shadwell. And for those of you who aren't familiar with Shadwell, it wasn't far from Monticello. Shadwell was named after the parish in London, England, where Jefferson's mother, Jane Randolph, was born. So basically, Jefferson's father, Peter, uh, surveyed this land, and they uh, built a home. And it wasn't just one home, there were other dwellings there. But he uh, named the place uh, Shadwell in honor of where Jane Randolph uh, was born. Very nice gesture, considering that, you know, Peter Jefferson wasn't a poor man. We might think of him as someone who is probably of middle class or somewhere maybe on the line of upper middle class status. But uh, but by doing uh, surveying work for the Randolph family and the work that he did was able to, um, it pretty much rewarded him for uh, being able to be not just so much a part of their family, but by marrying uh, Jane Randolph. So, these connections, in, uh, most notably in Virginia's society at this time, do pay off uh, significantly. Uh, the same can be said for George Washington when he married the widow uh, Martha Dandridge Custis. His status was enhanced significantly, significantly, largely in part because Martha herself was the wealthiest woman in Virginia, due in part to the death of her first husband, Daniel Park Custis. Now, given uh, that both men got a formal education at early ages, did Adams and Jefferson each attend college? Yes, John Adams attended Harvard. We don't say Harvard, we say Harvard. Whereas Thomas Jefferson attended William and Mary in Williamsburg. And what do you know? John Adams attended Harvard, Thomas Jefferson attending William and Mary, Aren't both of those uh, schools in America the two oldest uh, colleges? Harvard was established in 1636, William and Mary in 1693. So there's almost a 60-year age difference between America's two oldest universities. I'll tell you, nothing beats a good uh, glass of tea. And for the and you know and. Remember when we read, when we discussed Tempest and a teapot about how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution? Yes, at one time, uh, many years back, tea was considered a ladies' beverage. But how, how ironic that times have changed over the years and centuries to where tea is both a man's, both a man and woman's beverage, and they can both enjoy having a cup of tea together side by side. 
Well, it is fair to say that both John Adams and Thomas Jefferson each excelled in their studies and were well-versed and knowledgeable on a variety of subjects. John Adams entered Harvard in 1751 at age 16. Can you imagine being in his shoes and going off to Harvard at the age of 16? There were tests that, um, that men like John Adams took. However, I don't believe they were called the SATs in 1751, but hey. At 16, you know, he, he is really much, he is pretty much considered an adult. We have to remember that, you know, that once children made it past the age of 10, they were technically considered adults because life expectancy wasn't high back then. But to um, go to college at age 16 is quite an honor unto itself. He graduates in 1755 with a degree in divinity. Interesting, folks. You know, I, I thought he was a lawyer. Well, he was. Let's find out why um, things change. John Adams's father was a minister, so it was. It would have been customary for a, for the oldest son to follow in his father's footsteps, uh, profession-wise. And we should keep in mind that schools like Harvard and William and Mary, and if, and some of the other um, schools that were established after the start of the 18th century, like Yale University back in 1701, that those institutions were designed as schools of divinity. Sure, you could go there to study to become a, a lawyer. You would have been apprenticed to someone. Um, but primarily going to schools like Yale, Harvard, and William & Mary, you were there um, pretty much for divinity purposes. After all, <laughs> it is fair to say that the uh, colleges had strong ties to church and state. And isn't it fair to say that probably the president at, at some of these universities was the um, head um, minister of the church that for whom the school was supported by? Absolutely. So we have, at this time, folks, when Jefferson and Adams are in college, or most notably for John Adams, there really is no uh, notion of wanting to have church and state be separated. However, for John Adams, um, given that his dad was a minister, it was just after the Seven Years' War or the French and Indian War had broken out that John Adams begins shifting careers, where he decides that being a minister is not his true calling. So what does he do instead? He begins pursuing law in 1756, and he earns a law degree from Harvard around 1758. So, between 1758 and 1759, or most notably, I should say by 1759, John Adams is admitted to the Massachusetts State Bar. So he's really, in a sense, he's just shy of 25 years old, and now he has been admitted into the Massachusetts State Bar, which is a very, um, that's a very uh, high accomplishment. So, for Thomas Jefferson... How old do you think he is by the time he goes to, off to William & Mary? Is he about the same age as John Adams was when he went off to Harvard? Yes, Thomas Jefferson is about 16 years old between 1759-1760 when he um, enters William & Mary. And he graduates in two years, folks, from William & Mary. Jefferson is a man of a young man of rigorous studies. 
he uh, refrains from going to the taverns in terms of uh, wanting to have a drink. Uh, Jefferson knows that he's got a lot to uh, prove. And we should uh, keep in mind that just before Jefferson went off to college, uh, his father died. Thomas Jefferson's father, Peter, uh, died in 1757, just shy of uh, 50 years of age. This is a huge uh, loss for Thomas Jefferson, largely in part because he was very close to his father and admired him in every way there was. So Jefferson's uh, loss, the loss of his dad, um, there's a lot of void. And uh, Jefferson is the oldest of his siblings. Uh, he did lose two brothers to infancy. He does have another brother, but there's about a 12-year age difference. Jefferson has at least um, four or six sisters. So th think about it, being the oldest of eight. Yeah, I mean, there's a lot riding on your shoulder. But come 1762, he begins to study law. And whom is his biggest mentor at William & Mary? Whom do you think is his law professor? This man um, would become a future signer of the Declaration of Independence from, England, from uh, Virginia. And Jefferson um, even saw this man as the, as the father. He is like a, a father who has filled the void. That man's George Wythe. And what do you know, George Wythe and Thomas Jefferson both had something in common in that they each lost their fathers at, at a very young age. Uh, George Wythe was not even five years old by the time his father passed away. And for those of you who were with me last year when we discussed I Am Murdered, um, about George Wythe's death, um, for those of you who remember that series and learning about the uh, strong connection that Thomas Jefferson and George Wythe had, that was significant. George Wythe made a um, significant impact on young Thomas Jefferson's life. As a matter of fact, George Wythe would go on to mentor other significant um, men whom had um, tremendous status, not only in the state of Virginia, but in, um, in um, America's earliest days of when the Republic first existed. We talk about men like John Marshall, who went on to become uh, Chief Justice of the United States Supreme Court, he studied under George Wythe. James Monroe, whom would become President of the United States one day, whom served in other various um, governmental positions, and who um, was at the Battle of Trenton, New Jersey, the battle that uh, pretty much uh, saved um, the cause for uh, America's fight. Of course, I don't want to get ahead, but let's just think about these things, folks, because these men were all um, impacted by George Wythe's leadership. And then you have uh, a future fellow named Henry Clay from Ashland, Virginia, whom studied under George Wythe and become, became one of America's most significant orators uh, in the 19th century. So George Wythe, uh, what do you know? I mean, he um, definitely became a true father figure to, to young Thomas Jefferson during his time at William & Mary. Well, we know, okay, that both uh, John Adams and Thomas Jefferson are lawyers. Well, which of the two men emerged as being the better lawyer? That answer is Mr. John Adams. John Adams was an individual who relished being in the courtroom spotlight. 
given he liked conflict based upon the legal matters at stake. Well, is it fair to say that conflict is inevitable? Yes. Is it fair to say that conflict is inevitable in a courtroom trial? Yes, especially when you're trying to um, make your case before a jury, and especially when you um, begin with your opening remarks as well as with your closing remarks. There is conflict because it's all about trying to persuade a jury that the other side may have told you something, but is it really truthful? Is it really the real um, deal? I'm almost beginning to wonder, is John Adams a prosecutor or is he a defense lawyer? Well, I can tell you this much. John Adams represents um, people from all kinds of backgrounds. He, um, he represented people who uh, were dealing with um, creditor, debtor related issues. He dealt with um, just to name an example of a few things, he dealt with wills, estates. But then again, um, in his time, and like in our, with any other forefather who was a lawyer, they had to be well versed in all varieties, in all uh, aspects of the law, because um, you know we didn't have like five and six law firms per each community where each law firm specialized in its own um, field. So it is fair to say that lawyers in the 18th century have to be um, trained in every um, field there is because, you know, because if they don't, then how are they going to know how to respond to a, a client's um, matter uh, when the matter itself arises? So one of the best examples, examples I can give to you all about John Adams, I think many of you all might know where I'm coming at, but for those of you who don't, um, Let's uh, be prepared to hear what what's going to be said next. Does anybody know what's uh, important about March 5th, 1770? Didn't something happen that had never happened before in America? A shooting took place. But this was no ordinary shooting, folks. This, this was We're not talking about a duel here, folks. March 5th, 1770, the night that the Boston Massacre unfolded, where eight British soldiers under the command of their captain, being uh, Captain Thomas Preston, fired into an unruly uh, crowd, resulting in the deaths of five civilians. I know uh, most of us were told for years that the Boston Massacre um, was just an isolated incident where... Um, Protesters were politely voicing their opposition towards British presence in Boston. They had had enough of the uh, presence, only to have the British troops just fire at them out of nowhere, and five people lost their lives, and a dozen other people were wounded. I would like to think that that was the case, but it was not, folks. The Boston Massacre was an incident that had been brewing for some time, yes, largely in part because of the British presence in Boston that had um, that had come about two years before when T General Thomas Gage arrived with 2,500 British regulars. But what it, what really unfolded um, that led up to this incident was about three or four weeks in, earlier in mid to late February of 1770, a group of uh, mob followers, or I should say an un 
groups of unruly crowds. Think about this. When you hear about mob folks, we, don't, we shouldn't always think of organized crime. But mobs in the 18th century were referred to as unruly crowds, people who uh, protested left and right without any boundaries. Well, the mobs went after uh, those who were uh, not just loyalists who supported um, the cause to keep um, all 13 colonies under the uh, control of king and country, but unruly crowds went after uh, tax collectors, or what, what I call the customs uh, collectors. Customs collectors were despised from every angle. Many customs collectors had their homes uh, vandalized. Um, customs collectors themselves were tarred and feathered, all in the name of uh, doing things that, that, um, that patriots despised simply in part because they felt that their rights were being infringed upon. So long story short, an unruly crowd um, approached a, a customs collector by the name of Ebenezer Richardson. Okay, Ebenezer Richardson, customs collector. Uh, his loyalties automatically, sh automatically should be loyalist, correct? Yes. So anyways, Ebenezer Richardson is being harassed. He is being harassed to the point where not only does he feel threatened, but his family's being threatened. So he goes upstairs, has his family uh, protected. He fires a shot. And by firing a shot, he feels that he can get the mob to disperse. What he doesn't realize is that the shot that he fires ends up killing an 11-year-old boy named Christopher Sidair. And as tragic as it was, um, we should keep in mind that Christopher Sidair was a part of the mob crowd. However, it doesn't make it right that an 11-year-old boy lost his life and so for about three to four days straight, there was nothing but mob violence in Boston where mobs and British soldiers were confronting one another, hurting one another without any um, middle ground resolution in sight. So long story short of it, uh, a, century, um, um, a century man was hurled with an object. He goes in and gets... Um, about eight British soldiers and notifies the, the captain, being Mr. Captain Thomas Preston. The, the soldiers are heckled with objects to the point where a couple of them get knocked down, and then once they get knocked down, they start firing. So when, when we think of the Boston Massacre, we see that famous portrait that Paul Revere did where the troops fired into the crowd well, let's keep this in mind, folks. Nobody, there was never a recording or any kind of documents that proved that Captain Thomas Preston told his eight men to do the following. Soldiers, present your arms, take aim, make ready, fire. That never happened. But what we do know is that the soldiers were heckled to death to the point where they uh, felt that they just did not need to take any more abuse. So after a couple of them got up, they fired into the crowd, and yes, five civilians died, and about a dozen other people were wounded. So, so why is this all important? I mean, why does it affect John Adams if he wasn't there right away having witnessed the incident? Well, John Adams, um, given that he's a lawyer, and yes, the accused were arrested, but nobody wanted to represent them. John Adams decides to step in. Let's keep in mind John Adams is not looking for 15 minutes of fame, but what he does believe in his heart 
is that nobody ought to be deprived the right to counsel along with having a fair trial. So let's keep in mind, folks, whenever we, um, in, in the Bill of Rights, the first ten amendments to the Constitution, one of the amendments is that you have the right to a fair and speedy trial. Who do we have to thank for that? John Adams. So without John Adams, who knows when uh, the right to, uh, when one's right to a fair trial might have come into play. So, yes, as unfortunate as it was that the Boston Massacre happened, maybe something good did come out of it. John Adams was trying to, by representing these soldiers, he gave them the right to a fair trial, and he was also trying to teach the community about what happens when people's emotions go unchecked to the point where they resort to extremism, regardless of who started what. Both Adams and Jefferson were 23 years old when they first began practicing law on their own. Whereas John Adams made law or the practice of law as a career, Jefferson did not relish the courtroom spotlight. He felt as though lawyers profited off of the expenses from those below. Personal gain reasons. He only practiced law for five years. Maybe it's fair to say that Thomas Jefferson's not a fan of conflict. And that could be a reason why maybe his law career didn't last as long. But in 1768, Thomas Jefferson, at age 25, wins election to the House of Burgesses, despite his opposition towards unfair parliamentary practices. He turned his greater focus towards, built towards building Monticello, and by 1770, he was courting Martha Wales Skelton, a widow whom lived with her father. It's interesting enough, though, that Thomas Jefferson actually attended uh, college with Martha Wales Skelton's uh, first husband, uh, Bathurst Skelton. She had a son with him. Uh, sadly, though, that young boy died very young. Sadly, that was a uh, tragic norm in the 18th century, and as well as into the 19th century where many... Um, parents lost children at a young age. It didn't make it right, but sadly it happened. But on New Year's Day of 1772, Thomas and Martha Jefferson tied the knot, and they got married uh, despite his being a member of the House of Burgesses. Uh, Jefferson found <laughs> greater happiness outside of politics. I think that's very fair to say. Was John Adams a political firebird, or rather I should say a radical? No, and there's some, there are some reasons for that, folks. John Adams did not advocate violence leading to acts of destruction or uh, vandalism, where these acts of destruction and vandalism would result in people's properties being ruined, all based upon their personal loyalties. In other words, you know, the mob crowds would vandalize the customs collectors' um, homes or would vandalize their offices, all because they just didn't like the fact that they had ties to the crown. So for John Adams, you know, it's one thing to, to be opposed to a customs collector, but it doesn't mean you need to go around and destroy their properties. For John Adams, there is a boundary between um, expressing your displeasure versus taking it to an extreme where it results in the loss of life or results in unnecessary humiliation, all because someone else has different uh, loyalties than you do. 
if you want to know what um, another word, a term for patriot is, uh, think of Whig. And another term for loyalist was a Tory. However, uh, John Adams did speak out fervently against Parliament's passage of the 1765 Stamp Act through authoring what, is, what was known as the Braintree Instructions. The Braintree Instructions stated why the Stamp Act was to be opposed on two fundamental grounds. Number one, the first reason was due to the fact that all Englishmen, including all freemen, were to be taxed only by consent. What I mean by being taxed only by consent, meaning by permission. You can't just tax someone without giving them a notice ahead of time. Because if you don't give them any notice ahead of time, what is that a, a violation of, folks? Taxation without representation, which became the rally cry in opposition to the Stamp Act. Number two, all Englishmen were to be tried by a jury of one's peers. In other words... All Englishmen were innocent until proven guilty. The 1765 Stamp Act had been enacted without the consent from those governed below 3,000 miles across the ocean. Colonists were required to pay direct taxes on all paper items brought in from England. And what I mean by direct taxes, folks, those taxes that would go directly towards an entity being the entity itself that imposed them. Whereas an indirect tax is the opposite, where it's a tax on a, trans, a personal transaction. The colonists under the Stamp Act were forced to pay taxes where all revenues went back into Britain's treasury, which had been drained from the Seven Years' War. Uh, Parliament is facing about a $145 million deficit and of course, in 1765, we, we refer to it as pounds, but it 145 million. How much is America facing, folks? Folks, one million in pounds. That's a huge <laughs> number right there in terms of difference. But Parliament is desperate for money, and not just desperate for money, but that money is going to go towards protecting uh, the colonists um, from Indian invasions along the frontiers being uh, the land that goes west of the Appalachian Mountains. Well, what incident brought Thomas Jefferson back into public life? How about the events of December 16, 1773? The Boston Tea Party, folks. For those of you who were with me when we did American Tempest, how the Boston Tea Party sparked a revolution. Oh yes, those events of December 16, 1773. The Boston Tea Party, up to seven dozen men escorted customs officials off three vessels. Remember those three vessels? The Dartmouth, the Eleanor, and the Beaver? All largely in part because of the fierce opposition of East India tea on American docks at the port of Boston. These customs officials were escorted off peacefully. And the um, and those whom were uh, disguised as um, Mohawk Indians went about constructively destroying 342 tea chests and throwing them into Boston Harbor. You know, it's one thing to have such displeasure at at um, your government being 3,000 miles away, doing everything without your consent, but at some point. 
one's actions will catch up with them over time, and it might be sooner rather than later. What legislation did Parliament enact right after the Boston Tea Party incident? What legislation do you think took place? I bet many of you probably already know, because it has been discussed in lots of other podcast segments, uh, most notably from American Tempest, but probably from other ones also. How about, um, how about I tell those of you who aren't familiar? Well, Parliament in 1774 passed a series of measures that became infamously known as the Coercive Acts, but in America they became known as the Intolerable Acts. So they were a series of measures that uh, got placed under one, under one unique title, Coercive or Intolerable Acts. But given the time constraint that we have, I will um, talk about one of them here. The most uh, recognized or well-known measure was the Port Bill, or what we call the, the Port Bill that um, significantly impacted the Port of Boston. Under the Port Bill, uh, the Port of Boston was closed altogether. So in other words, no more goods could come into Boston or leave out. So where does what city now is going to be home to um, the port? It's going to be north, not not too far from Boston, but um, how about Salem? When I think of Salem, you all would agree. The infamous 1692 Salem witchcraft trials. Okay, so the Port of Boston gets relocated north to Salem. But for those in Boston, so many people's livelihoods were dependent upon the Boston upon Boston's port, not just so much for goods coming into Boston, but goods going out. And then you got the rope makers, caulkers, you've got people who work on ships left and right. How about merchants? You know, merchants whom are dependent upon goods coming into their shops to sell to the, to sell to the locals. Everybody's impacted. And it's fair to say that pretty much everybody's been left jobless. And those who aren't left jobless are probably um, those whom have ties to king and country. And not only is being jobless an issue, but many are faced with food shortage issues. Think about it. If you don't have enough goods coming in that um, involve food, then people are going to be um, in a crisis. You know, think about it, folks. We don't have grocery stores left and right in the 18th century where you can go to pick up um to pick up uh, frozen burger patties. Let's keep that in mind, folks. The closure of Boston's port led other colonies to band together, where come the beginning of September 1774, delegates from 12 of the 13 British colonies convened at Carpenter's Hall in Philadelphia, Pennsylvania, and John Adams was one of the delegates there. My wife and I were in Philadelphia last summer, and we had a blast. Uh, the historic district is phenomenal, and one of the sites that we visited was Carpenter's Hall, where the First, Co First Continental Congress convened. That was pretty amazing. Just being inside there and thinking to yourselves, this is where a, a part of history unfolded. This is where it all got started, where people from northern colonies, middle colonies, to the southern colonies all came together many of them not sure what was going to come out of this, if there was even going to be any kind of resolution. Oh, and by the way, which of the 13 colonies did not send a delegate to Philadelphia in, in September of 1774? Georgia. Why Georgia? 
because Georgia is fighting a war with the Creek Indian Nation, and whom does Georgia need assistance from? England. So, but don't worry, folks. Georgia will eventually get on track. So, um, the purpose of this meeting was not about immediate separation from England, although Samuel Adams was present, and of course uh, Samuel Adams being the extreme uh, rebel rouser as he was, Samuel Adams was warned by others that, look, you mention about independence left and right, you may not be, your time here is going to be short. Let's uh, let's try to see if we can find another way out before going to the uh, before going to that down that last uh, resort road. So yes, the um, purpose of the meeting was not about immediate separation from England, but in response to those coercive acts regarding the closure of Boston's port. So the first Continental Congress instituted what was called a non-importation agreement. That is a boycott on all imported goods from England. This measure led to a 97% decline in a year's time. So in other words, imported goods from England went down over 90%. Maybe that should get Parliament to wake up and realize, hey, look, our subjects 3,000 miles across the ocean aren't as dumb as we have liked to make them out to be. Maybe we need to um, understand where they're coming from. <laughs> Wishful thinking, to say the least. Jefferson did not arrive to Philadelphia until June of 1775, whereas John Adams had already taken center stage, leading, a, leading the faction group supporting independence. Thomas Jefferson played a more secondary role that still enabled him to function well in small groups, or these small groups like committees or subcommittees, where Jefferson went about establishing solid rapport with uh, select individuals. Some of them he um, developed uh, relationships with that most of us don't know about, most notably uh, John Dickinson of Pennsylvania, for whom uh, Dickinson College is named after in uh, Carlisle, PA. That uh, friendship was a very uh, unique one, uh, given... Um, given where Dickinson himself uh, stood on separation from England. Now, while John Adams excelled as an orator or an orator in speaking to delegates as an entire body, Mr. Jefferson's pen, being that of his writing abilities, became a phenomenal asset. Many in Congress often went to him for drafting statements. Maybe it's fair to say that in today's modern time that Thomas Jefferson might have been a good editor-in-chief of a newspaper, given his uh, successful writing skills and his ability to probably perhaps proofread other people's works before they get officially published. So, whereas John Adams was a regular talker, Jefferson was more of a regular observer whom spoke when he knew it was essential. Whom do you think uh, persuaded Thomas Jefferson to write that famous historic document? What famous historic document am I referring to, folks? The Declaration of Independence. Whom persuaded Jefferson to write it? None other than Mr. John Adams. Largely, for one, um, because Jefferson was a, an excellent writer, and John Adams knew that Thomas Jefferson himself had very few enemies in Congress. 
Why do you think John Adams felt that he had a fair number of enemies in Congress? Because, for one, John Adams was advocating separation from England, but yet at the same time there was a faction, most notably from the middle colonies, led by Mr. John Dickinson, whom did not feel that uh, the colonies were uh, mature enough to handle separation. John Dickinson felt that once the apron... Once the apron's knot was severed, there would be no going back. In other words, the, the knot that is um, tied from behind is what keeps, what keeps uh, the mother country and her subjects intact. And once the knot is undone, then will the mother country want her subjects back? That's up to the mother country. After all, at this time, King George III has considered his subjects to be ungrateful. And that dates back to the time when the French and Indian War came to an end, so this was not some overnight remark. So, John Adams also believes that um, Thomas Jefferson, being a Virginian, that a Virginian deserved to write this document. And I think it's fair to say largely in part because Virginia is the largest of the 13 colonies. Not so much she's the largest, but John Adams knew that for any other colony to want to declare separation from England, they needed to go through Virginia. Virginia has the most to gain and yet the most to lose. John Adams went as far as saying to Thomas Jefferson, um, I'm a man who likes conflict, and I'm also a man who's obnoxious, and I don't believe a man who's obnoxious, obnoxious should be writing this document. Humor um, in a time of crisis, to say the least. What did uh, Adams and Jefferson envision about government prior to Revolutionary War's end? John Adams wanted a government where the institution itself, along with the people, worked together for the greater good. Jefferson wanted a government that would be less intrusive, where power itself wasn't placed in the hands of a select few. I think we should um, learn some stuff about Jefferson's uh, role in, um, you know, yes, after the Declaration of Independence was, was um, approved of and the delegates signed, we should learn about Jefferson's time um, after 1776, especially as the 1770s are coming to an end. In 1779, um, he succeeded Patrick Henry as Virginia's governor, where he goes about proposing statutes on religious freedom. And of course, remember, that's one of the three things that are that's um, that on his um, gravestone or tombstone that he is remembered for. Um, the other two are the um, author of the Declaration of Independence, the second being the uh, founder of the uh, Virginia Statutes on Religious Freedoms, and the third being the uh, founder of the University of Virginia. But yes, religious freedom is a big thing because in Virginia it is the Church of England that runs the show. And uh, Jefferson, while yes, he grew up in an Anglican household, and of course, you know, being from a wealthy family, yes, your ties are to, to the Anglican Church. But as Jefferson went off to William and Mary, that's when um, things start to gradually change with regards to the relationship between church and state. But he knows that church and state should not be bound together, that they should be two separate entities. 
He also uh, advocates uh, reforming the state's criminal code and the treatment of criminals. And all of this gets done um, with uh, criminal code and um, reforming the criminal code and the treatment of criminals with the help of George Wythe and Edmund Pendleton. But in June of 1781, uh, Jefferson's, image as, Jefferson's image as Virginia's governor drastically changes for the worse. We would think of this in today's time as a scandal, and it was considered to be, a, in my opinion, the 9-11, Virginia's 9-11 of, of the 18th century. In June of 1781, the British are, making, are advancing into Virginia. And their goal is to um, get Richmond. But the thing is, is that Thomas Jefferson um, and the legislature have evacuated Richmond and have gone as far west as Charlottesville and Stanton, where they can conduct business. So they, Jefferson and the legislature feel as though they're safe, but sadly they're not. A man by the name of uh, Colonel Banastray Tarleton, a British uh, cavalry officer who got the nickname of Bloody Ban, led a force of over um, just shy of around 200, um, of 200 men. Uh, there was uh, dragoons as well as um, as well as infantry men uh, made their way. Believe it or not, folks, they made their way to Mont um, into Charlottesville, and they were almost. At their objective, what was their objective? Uh, to get Thomas Jefferson and members of the legislature. But a, an unknown figure who would become the Paul Revere of the South named Jack Jewett, he had overheard talks from uh, enemy sources at Winston's Ordinary in uh, Cuckoo, which is a, a little town in Louisa County, not far from where I live. Matter of fact, uh, Mineral is not far from Cuckoo, where that um, earthquake, where the earthquake's epicenter happened back in 2011, uh, that um, that uh, did damage to uh, the Washington uh, Monument. But anyways, Jack Jewett rode 40 miles into the night and arrived by morning up to Monticello, where Jefferson and other members of the legislature, whom were at other facilities, all escaped in enough time before the before the inevitable would have happened. So Jefferson's servants, folks, had, um, had been able to halt the British to where Jefferson got on his horse in enough time and met up with his family uh, west of Charlottesville or southwest in uh, what we now know as Bedford County. Had it not been for this rider, Jack Jewett, uh, Thomas Jefferson would have been captured and taken back to England as a prisoner and, and would have ultimately been sentenced to die. Jefferson's time as governor was the lowest moment in, in his time in public office, and there were those who wanted him censured, impeached. However, his reputation was spared by the American victory at Yorktown, including his own uh, self-defense hearing, where he went before a court and members of the state legislature and stated everything which he could have done differently despite the dire situation's outcome that did happen jefferson's own self-personal defense was recognized by everyone and it was accepted by the state so all was forgiven i don't know how that would have been in today's world but it is fair to say that being on the high stage 
even as a governor, was probably not Jefferson's strongest fit. But what traumatic event happened in late 1782 which left Jefferson uh, distraught? Sadly, his 34-year-old wife Martha died from complications due to childbirth. Jefferson was left a widower with three daughters. He had already lost three children in infancy, and come 1784, he leaves for France, where he will um, take on the ambassadorship position, and he will stay there until uh, 1789. Was John Adams overseas in Europe by the time Thomas Jefferson arrives to France? Yes, Adams himself, prior to, to the war's end, or the Revolutionary War's end, had spent time in France and Holland, but come May of 1785, he became the first U.S. minister to England. It was while in Paris that uh, Jefferson and um, the Adamses lived near one another for 10 months and had gotten to know each other very well by spending many evenings together via dining and talking. Jefferson was so impressed with John Adams' wife, Abigail, he often thought of her as probably one of the most uh, well-educated and uh, well-knowledgeable women that he had known in uh, some time. And even Abigail Adams herself had the utmost regards for Mr. Jefferson. And to think these two men, by the time 1800 rolls around, are going to be running against each other. I often have to wonder, are they still going to be friends regardless of which one emerges as the victor and which one um, loses? While Adams and Jefferson were each away overseas in Europe, had America's post-war issues concerned men, most notably like John Adams? Yes, for uh, John Adams... Uh, the fact that a weak central government existed under the Articles of Confederation was an alarm bell waiting to explode. Considering that there was no proper system of checks and balances instituted, in other words, all 13 states, each one acting as its own independent sovereignty, pretty much meant that the government above, that is the national government, would get vetoed down from everyone below regardless of the proposals at stake. So no matter what the national government could do, the states pretty much had the power to, to say, hey, we're our own separate entity. We, we coin our own money. We conduct uh, treaties with, with, with countries overseas. What, what are you telling us that we can and can't do? So the national government has no means to power, has no means for uh, going about having any powers behind taxing to regulating commerce. So it really wasn't until early 1787, most notably in the aftermath of what had happened in late 1786 with Shays' Rebellion. Um, the, for those of you who were with me um, when we did um, that uh, series last summer, Shays' Rebellion, the American Revolution's final uh, battle, about the uprisings uh, where farmers were able to close the uh, courts because of the fear that their homes would be foreclosed. I mean, it was it was a very uh, scary period of time where ordinary people were uh, getting access to being able to shut down courtrooms, uh, courts, and you know, for men like George Washington, James Madison, Alexander Hamilton, even John Adams can be in the boat, same boat here. Hey, something's got to be done differently. Otherwise, if not, this country's going to fall into anarchy, and America itself isn't going to probably um, exist as we know it. So early 1787, while still overseas, John Adams learns 
that a meeting was scheduled in Philadelphia come summer of 1787 um, to reform the existing central government and replace it with something better versus what currently existed. And what was currently existing, folks, that was fledgling and in a lot of people's eyes was irrelevant, the Articles of Confederation. By mid-1788, John and Abigail Adams have returned back to America. Thomas Jefferson, on the other hand, still remains in France, and he witnessed the first waves of violence ensue. What do I mean, folks? The French Revolution. However, by late 1789, Thomas Jefferson, along with his two surviving daughters, Martha and Maria, along with slaves James and Sally Hemings, all returned to America. And I just want to point something out here real quick about Sally Hemings, because her name will be mentioned in some other podcasts. Sally Hemings, um, Jefferson's oldest daughter, Martha. Actually, I take it back. Jefferson's late wife, uh, Martha. Let let me rephrase it here. Jefferson's uh, daughter, Martha, and Sally Hemings were uh, half-sisters. In other words, Thomas Jefferson's late father-in-law, John Wales, um, one of his uh, children, was Sally Hemings. So that's how all of that—that's um, un- how all of that uh, unfolds. That's the connection between uh, Jefferson and Hemings. But they all returned to America safely. Adams and Jefferson each have grand envisions about what uh, the future looks like for America. John Adams saw the new governing document being the Constitution as a more relevant approach to how government should function through a proper system of checks and balances. While Jefferson knew that the Articles of Confederation need replace, did need replacing, and he was glad about that, he's still a little bit skeptical about the Constitution because it's filled with many outstanding unknowns. Well, you know, our forefathers whom whom established our Constitution knew that it wasn't going to be perfect, but it was the best they could come up with, and they knew that over time there were going to be changes that would have to be made. As Benjamin Franklin said, we call it a republic, but it's up to you as to whether or not you can keep it. So, Thomas Jefferson and John Adams have both uh, come back to America knowing that we do have something better in place. The bigger question is going forward is who's going to be our who's going to become the new uh, commander in chief and how will government function on a day by day basis. Well, we've covered a lot of ground and I look forward to being back on the air again with you all next time. And when I'm on the air again next, we're going to talk about even more uh, fascinating stuff that is uh, relevant. After all, if it weren't relevant, I'm not sure why I would even be on the air podcasting. But thank you for again for your time. As always, you guys are great, and uh, continue to listen, continue to learn, and get the word out to others. Take care and stay safe for now.